walk through this section and then think about some of the implications for us today. Firstly then, this delicate question of divorce. Addressing this topic, I'm well aware of how delicate a subject it is. On any given Sunday, there will be singles who are really keen to get married. There'll be some married people considering divorce. There'll be people coming to terms with the divorce that they've been through. There are divorced people wondering if they can remarry. And there are people wondering if they should marry divorced people. And this topic is just full of, of emotion, of longing, of hurt, of uncertainty. It is a delicate question. But let's notice that the same issues are in play when Jesus is asked about divorce here in chapter 19. Notice the motivation for this question from the Pharisees in, in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. Uh, there's a growing story in, in all the gospel accounts of this conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. <coughs> Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, they ask? Now, this is not a, just a polite academic question. This is not a sincere desire to know how to live in a way that pleases God. The geography was significant. They were in the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Now, why is that significant? Well, this is the part of the country that's ruled by this guy called Herod Antipas. The man who had divorced his own wife and married his brother's former wife, Herodias. Now, what happened to the last person that challenged this marriage arrangement. Well, Matthew already told us back in chapter 14. John the Baptist got arrested in this very region and imprisoned in the palace not that far away from where they were and eventually lost his head because he'd been declaring about Herod's marriage, it is not lawful for you to have her. See, this question is a trap. It's an attempt to bait Jesus into a response that could, well, it could annoy the authorities and remove Jesus from the scene, which is exactly what they wanted to happen. Tell us, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The reason I mention this is to notice that we don't have here the complete teaching of the Bible on the subject of divorce. It is given in the context of this conflict uh, of this testing. But we have to see the clarity and courage of Jesus' response that calls us as Christians to really have a very high view of marriage. Because secondly, Jesus took them to the very beginning in verses four to six, the creator's purpose for marriage. They essentially wanted to talk about no-fault divorce. But first Jesus wanted them to remember the whole point of marriage. Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator <coughs> made them male and female. There are so many implications packed in verses 4 to 6. Next slide, please. Where Jesus uh, quotes from the book of Genesis 
both in chapter 1 and 2. Notice just as an aside how Jesus views the book of Genesis. He treats it as God's revealed and authoritative word to us. God has spoken and revealed himself and it's been written down. And so if we want the the final authority about what God says about himself, about us, about how to live, we need to read the Bible and obey its teaching. And and that's the response of Jesus, all, all packed into that phrase. Haven't you read? Before he quotes Genesis, here's the authoritative response. Jesus believed the book of Genesis and that's why Christians believe the book of Genesis. This is the Bible book that tells us about the origin of the universe, about the reason and purpose for our existence, about why this world is is messed up as it is and how God has promised he's going to fix it. And if you hear someone here today as someone wrestling with how does the current scientific thinking uh, fit with these opening chapters, can I encourage you to have a read of John John Lennox's book, Seven Days That Divide the World. I read it over Christmas. It's a great read. And by the way, if you want to hear Professor Lennox live, he's going to be doing the Harriet Watt Chaplaincy Lecture on February the 13th. I'm, sh- I, I'm, I'm not sure there'll be any tickets left because he's such a, an appreciated lecturer, but you might want to see if you can hear him directly. You see, as, as Western society loses this biblical worldview, we are seeing increasing confusion about really fundamental things. And so... As Christians, we need to keep doing what Jesus does here and go back to these opening chapters to orientate and shape us and shape our lives as a Christian community. Studying these chapters will will help us see that we have a purposeful and loving creator. And so actually, our life has purpose and meaning as we live it in relationship to him. It shows us that there's dignity and value to every human being, both male and female, that should be honored because uh, uniquely human beings have been made in the image of God. It tells us that our sexuality is is God-given and should be ordered according to God's good design. It teaches us that it was God's design that there should be two genders and that we need the otherness of the opposite sex to fulfill God's creation purpose. We were designed to exist in community. Now I know I'm kind of just running through a modern minefield and there's probably questions exploding all over the place in people's minds as I ran through the field there. And maybe we'll get to some of these questions over the coming weeks. But just notice with me the point that Jesus was drawing our attention to about God's creational purpose for marriage verse 4 haven't you read he replied that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh the whole point of creating us male and female is for this reason for the possibility of marriage and children. Again, as an aside, notice the ideal. Children are to be raised by their father and mother until they form a marriage and start a new family unit. This is the creation norm that God set up at the beginning and the reason that God created us male and female. 
The Pharisees want to speak about no-fault divorce. Can a married couple separate in divorce? But Jesus wants to remind them of God's creation purpose in marriage for the very first point. It was to unite a man and a woman as a one flesh union. The Bible describes marriage as a, as a covenant. A biblical covenant is a very solemn agreement made between two parties in the presence of God. It, promises are made. Obligations and responsibilities are assumed. And biblically, as Jesus teaches here, a marriage covenant is to be a public, exclusive, and permanent commitment of a man and a woman to live united together in marriage as husband and wife. It is marked as a decisive moment of leaving the family unit of your parents to start a publicly recognized new family unit. It is a lifelong, exclusive, permanent committed to, commitment to being united together, two individuals becoming one flesh. Now the book of Ephesians fills out the significance of this, of this idea of one flesh. It is a powerful uh, idea. The husband is called to love his wife as his own flesh. In the same way that he loves and cares for himself, he's to ensure that his wife is nourished, cherished, and cared for. And so when you see that your spouse has a need or is in pain or has a, has a problem, you seek to address it as best you can rather than ignore it or blame it. If you've got a problem with yourself, you don't ignore it and blame it. And this now is your flesh, your one flesh with them. After all, if you whack your thumb with a hammer, you don't fall about laughing at it. <laughs> no, you care for it. You don't make fun of your spouse's pain. They're one flesh. You deal with it. You care for it. In fact, if, if a marriage is to reflect the relationship uh, between, uh, that Christ has with his church, then this obligates the husband to care for his wife with, with sacrificial love to ensure that she is loved and cared for even before himself. And the wife is called to respect her husband and submit to his loving leadership and care. There's the, the biblical ideas packed into this, this amazing phrase of being one flesh. To be one flesh is, is in a sense to be one in every sense, domestically, emotionally, and of course sexually. The good gift of sexual pleasure was created by God to be enjoyed exclusively within this committed, lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. And notice that, that marriage, according to Jesus, is not just a decision between a woman and a man. Because God is also actively involved. As it says in verse 6 of, of Matthew 19, God has joined them together. This is God's creation purpose for marriage, to unite. And so nobody should seek to bring about a separation. This is a Christian understanding of marriage. And it obviously rules out any view that treats divorce as something trivial or easy that could be enacted for any and every reason. Now we've thought about the, the creator's purpose for marriage. What do we make of the fact that the Old Testament does 
contained teaching about divorce. I mean, the, the Pharisees picked that up in verse 7, don't they? Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, this is what Jesus said to that in verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now what Jesus teaches here is that because we now live in a a sin-cursed world where relationships have become disordered, then there are some grounds for conceding divorce. The Creator has given some concessions for divorce. The Pharisees were quoting part of Deuteronomy 24 and using it perhaps as, as if divorce were part of God's intention for us. Why then, they asked, did Moses command? As if God desires that we should divorce our partners. But that's not so, Jesus says. Deuteronomy 24 is not an intention for God, but a concession. Moses permitted, Jesus says. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. Divorce comes as one of the consequences of living in, on the other side of mankind's fall into sin and rebellion against God. Hardness of heart is not referring to fatty deposits in the heart that may require some treatment, but the spiritual stubbornness of our sinful hearts. Our sin and our stubbornness can get to such a point that our marriages can suffer irreparable harm. Divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. But the circumstances and reasons that lead to divorce are always about sinful behaviors and attitudes. And sin can become so vile that divorce is better than continuing indecency. That's the word that uh, Deuteronomy uses, which was the permissible grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. We've just had Christmas. I've often wondered whether to do a Christmas talk, a great time for a divorce. Because, of course, the first Christmas did cause Joseph to think about divorcing Mary as he, as he saw, heard about her pregnancy and assumed the worst and assumed that she had cheated on him. He was thinking about divorce. That was a permissible grounds for divorce. Only if there was some indecency could divorce take place. And at the time of Jesus, uh, religious leaders had come to a point where some had defined indecency as almost anything. And so it became a, a kind of a no-fault divorce. One rabbi called Hillel taught, even if she spoiled a meal, too much salt, out of the door. Rabbi Akaba even said this, even if there was nothing wrong about your wife, but you find another fairer than your wife, and she, she becomes sort of indecent to you because there's a better-looking woman on offer, divorce was permitted on that basis. So you can see that divorce laws had become very lax. And some had gone that way. And the sad reality is that today marriages can be treated not as something that is till death do us part, but until it becomes inconvenient until we would like something new or better. 
And it was that sort of lax and trivial view of marriage and divorce that Jesus is addressing here. They'd found a way to seem religiously respectable uh, in their divorces as somehow fulfilling biblical requirements. But their unbiblical divorce was simply a form of adultery. Jesus does mention an exception here. When a divorce takes place because one of the marriage partners transgresses the covenant bond of marriage through sexual immorality, then the innocent party would not be causing adultery if they remarried. And Mark's gospel in chapter 10 makes it clear that that's not just true uh, if the man discovers the wife has committed adultery, but also if the wife discovers that the husband, and that's a ground. Now, as, as a church, the elders' understanding ha- has been up to this point that as grievous as divorce always is, the Bible does concede that it can be a righteous way forward with the possibility of remarriage for those who've been sinned against in two clear circumstances. Firstly, adultery, which is from Matthew 19, and secondly, abandonment by an unbeliever, which is in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. And we don't have time to look at 1 Corinthians 7 today. It is a massive topic. And there are all sorts of pastoral complications, even if you have some clear lines that can keep elders awake at night. A couple of general points. Firstly, disciples of Jesus take marriage seriously. (coughs) Since the high point of Peter realizing that Jesus is the Christ back in chapter 16, he, he has been teaching them about what it means to follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, Jesus says, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And this discipleship affects every aspect of our lives, even the most personal aspects of our lives as we see in chapter 19, our marriage, our our sex lives, our children, our possessions, all of it comes under the Lordship of Christ. To say I'm following Christ means that we will want to follow the, the, the way that he teaches is right. Disciples of Jesus take marriage seriously. To be a follower of Jesus means not to live by the easy divorce and remarriage practices of the culture around us. As disciples of Jesus, we are to observe lifelong commitments to our spouses, showing loyalty and love. The exceptions, I think, establish the principle that insofar as it is up to the individual Christian, he or she must be committed to his or her spouse till death do us part and must do nothing to damage their own marriage or anybody else's. So firstly, disciples of Jesus should take marriage very seriously. Secondly, The grace of God is there for sinners who repent. Jesus is moving down from Galilee to Judea and he's heading towards Jerusalem because of the fact that we've all got sinful, stubborn hearts that need forgiveness. He was heading to the cross so that we could be reconciled to God, that the penalty of our sin would be paid and this covers all of our sin, including our sexual sins and our, and our broken promises, if we put our trust in him. Jesus can forgive our past 
and he can empower us to live out the consequences of where we are in our lives and empower us to live changed lives for his glory. So as I finish up, just here's some thoughts for different categories of people who might be here today. Firstly, to the unmarried. We're going to be thinking about singleness a bit more next week. But if you're an unmarried single today and you're serious about following Christ, choose your marriage partner very carefully. You are choosing for life. That's the, that's the teaching of the Lord Jesus. For marriage to really work, you need not only to be committed to that person, but be committed to what marriage is in itself. And the scriptures are clear. If you're a disciple of Christ, then you should only marry another Christian disciple. To choose to marry someone who is not a believer or is not just disobedient, it'll be the cause of many times of loneliness and conflict and misunderstanding as you and your spouse will be pulling in different directions. If you want to follow Christ, why would you even want to start a relationship with someone who's not a clear believer? You will save yourself and them from so much grief if you avoid doing that. Secondly, if you're married and happy, nurture your marriage. Don't take your spouse for granted. Do plan in your diary to spend time together. Keep thinking of ways that you can express your love and care in a way that they appreciate. Your marriage relationship is more important even than your relationship with your children. One day the children will leave and it'll just be you two. So invest in your marriage. If you're married and unhappy, don't give up on marriage. Seek help from God in prayer. Your marriage matters to God. He was there at the beginning and he wants to be part of making it better. Seek help from others. Marriage is both private, but it is also public. There, there are some great uh, books that you can read. And, and it doesn't matter what book on marriage and relationships you buy almost. Get two of them and read it together and talk about it. Look at ways that you can invest in your marriage. But do seek help if you're struggling. If, you, if you've got to a point where it's not getting any better, involve others that you trust to come alongside and help. Unfaithfulness in your marriage does not necessarily have to mean the end of your marriage. With God's grace, it is possible to work towards reconciliation and the healing of your marriage. And I want to say to you, if you're in a relationship with an abusive spouse, get help straight away. Do come and speak to uh, anyone on the pastoral team, any of the elders. Don't remain suffering in silence. To those who are divorced, can I say you are greatly loved by God. There is hope and fulfilled life that God can make possible for you. Trust him and live for God's glory. In John chapter 4, Jesus deliberately goes to the well in Samaria 
and engages in a conversation with a woman who had been through a lot of pain and disappointment in her relationships. Five broken marriages. And the man she was living with wasn't her husband. She was lonely and isolated in her community. And yet in God's grace, Jesus came to meet with her. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Our culture today, as many cultures in the past have done, elevate a sexual relationship to being the highest and most important thing in life. It is something almost religious, something that saves us. The film Titanic that was the blockbuster was, uh, when you boil it down to it, was a message that was basically salvation through fornication. As Rose says to Jack about Jack, he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Well, that's just not true. The woman at the well knew all too well from her broken marriages that marriage and sex cannot bring completeness and salvation. Jesus offers something greater in himself, living water that cleanses and satisfies us. His Holy Spirit and eternal life in relationship with him, which is truly salvation. Remarried. My question to you is, have you dealt with your past? Perhaps your actions were sinful. Maybe you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce and shouldn't have remarried. Well, have you faced up to that? Have you repented? Have you confessed that to God? Well, if you've done that, know this, that God graciously wants to be part of this marriage. Despite all the sin and mess involved with David's relationship with Bathsheba, Matthew's genealogy at the start of his gospel reminds us that the line of David that goes down to Jesus was through this very relationship. King Solomon was the child of David whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew seems to doubly underline how like everything was wrong about that. And yet in God's grace, that's the line through which Jesus came. Jesus came to a broken world of sinners to save us, to restore us, to offer something new. How amazing is the grace of God for sinners like us? Let's pray.